This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. Well, good morning, Bridgeway. I want to add my words of welcome. It is great to see you here today. I'm Pastor Ron. I hope you're doing great this morning. If you're new or visiting with us, as that very dramatic video introduced, we are in the book of Revelation. In fact, today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and find your way there. My goal, my hope in this series is to take a book that I feel a lot of Christians uh, struggle with, find it complex, kind of get tuned off by it, and try to make it a little clearer. I realize you probably are going to have more questions than I can answer, but my hope is to bring some clarity to it. And today is a great day to be at church because today in the book of Revelation, we are taking a tour of heaven. I hope you got your ticket. I'll be your tour guide this morning. And uh, if you're here today and maybe you've got questions about heaven, this might begin to open some of them up. If you're here this morning and you've always thought that the book of Revelation was kind of bizarre, a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, I might prove you right this morning. It's a, it's a challenging but beautiful view that we get to see. And it's a glimpse. It's a foray into heaven. Um, I want to just start this message maybe with kind of an honest acknowledgement. In fact, when you come to this topic of heaven, first of all, it's huge. To try to think that I would explain heaven uh, in 25 or 30 minutes is, frankly, it's overwhelming for your pastor. More than that, though, I find that this subject of heaven is, is something that everyone has sort of an opinion on, or maybe even an obsession with. There's kind of a a healthy sort of idea of what is heaven like. In fact, not just from Christian circles, all religions have a view on heaven. You're not alone in that way. In fact, maybe what's more fascinating is not just religious people, but irreligious people have a view and an idea of what heaven is like. In fact, um, I'll just show you a few categories to think through. Let's go to my favorite category, which is classic rock, right? It seems like the 70s was filled with songs about heaven, right? There's Bob Dylan's Knocking on Heaven's Door. There's Eric Clapton's Tears in Heaven. There's, of course, my favorite, Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. I could go on and on. This is my, this is my love. I love classic rock. Uh, but not just that. In fact, artwork. People have tried to draw a picture of heaven. You could look at the classic artist. I actually found this piece of int- art really interesting. Um, This is by an artist by the name uh, Miguel Alonso, and it's believed that this is the first piece of art that was actually AI-generated. You're going to hear a lot of AI stuff in our world. This is the first piece of art. I don't know. It's a little dark for my taste, but this is his view. If that's a little too highbrow, you could always go kind of low school or kind of old school and look at some of the comics. In fact, Farside, Bill Larson kind of made a kind of made a career and a killing out of comics all about heaven. He kind of had a take that heaven was sort of dull and boring. He played that out in most of his comics. Uh, Many of them were also, you know, chubby babies playing harps, those sort of things. And today, I want to submit to you as your pastor that heaven is far more real and much more overwhelming than you and I could ever imagine on this side of eternity. And our writer, John, is trying to give us as many signposts as he can that this is going to be different. 
He's been kind of giving us these visions into what heaven looks like as the revelation of Jesus and the future events. John has been a person that you can count on in scriptures. He's reliable. He's followed Jesus his whole life. Since he was a teenager, he started following Jesus. And he goes all through his life and follows Jesus. And now he's an old man. He's 80, 85 years of age. He should be retired. But instead, this guy is actually still being persecuted. Uh, He's been wanted. They've tried to kill this man. And now they've placed him sort of in a prison on the island of Patmos. He's been burned by boiling oil. He's got to be hurting in, in all ways. And Jesus comes and visits him. And you would think that Jesus would come and and provide some comfort. Hey, John, old pal, let me come alongside of you. And instead of that, we actually get Jesus coming before John and giving him one final project. Kind of like, John, you're not retired. I'm not done with you yet. I got one more project, and it's this. In fact, it's laid out for us in Revelation 1, verse 19. These are the words of Jesus when he visits him. He says to John, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are... And those that are to take place after this. Now, I know, I know. The book of Revelation is confusing. But actually, this one verse gives you an outline for the entire book. Kind of a way in which you can sort of break this book down. Let me kind of explain it to you. When Jesus says, right, therefore, the things that you have seen, that's this appearance of Jesus. Jesus is standing before John. And it's incredible. He's got this white woolly hair, and we're told there's this sword coming out of his mouth. His feet are like burnished bronze. He's, he's walking among these lampstands, which are the seven churches. He's holding seven stars. I mean, it's an incredibly detailed vision, all found in Revelation 1. You could say the first part of the outline of the book is the things that John has seen, and that's Revelation 1. And then he says, write down the things that are. That's kind of the current events, kind of like the what's happening now in the world. And these are these seven letters to the seven churches in Turkey that John was responsible for. Um, It's kind of a progress report, kind of a a grade uh, over them. Things are doing well. Things are not doing so well. We've looked at a couple of these churches. We looked at the church in Ephesus, how it had lost its first love. We looked at that one. We also looked last week at the church in Laodicea. They were just lukewarm. You need to write these things down as kind of a warning for the church. And that would be The things that are are Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And we're kind of turning, going in the direction of this last part of the outline. Write the things that are to take place after this. This is the big chunk of Revelation. This is chapters 4 all the way to the end, till chapter 22. Basically, the whole rest of the book. Write down, John, the future, the things that are to come. And this... I think, is where things really begin to get interesting in the book. In fact, I'll say it this way. I've been a pastor long enough to know that in my own reading and studying of the book, this is where I start to have lots of questions. And Christians that I've talked to, kind of my friend group, this is where they start to have lots of questions. It also becomes kind of the place where a lot of people sort of become like, this is too complex. I can't understand this. I can't make sense of this. And there can be kind of a tendency to sort of tap out at this point of the book. Ah, oh, it's too hard. It's too crazy. I'm kind of scared reading this, Pastor. And this is where I want to encourage you to continue to press in to this part of the book. Yeah, you're going to have questions. Yeah, it's not all going to make sense. But begin to press into it. In fact, I want to give you kind of 
one thing to think about as we kind of turn our attention in this book towards the future, and it has to do, well, just do this for me. Take, take both your hands and just make them into a fist. Go ahead, make them into two fists. You're not going to punch the person next to you. Don't worry. And I want you to think of that right hand and hold it tightly. I want you to think of how you're pressing that hand together right now, and I want you to imagine that in that hand is the truth of God. It's God's word. You're holding God's word, and you won't let go of it. Kind of my hope as a pastor is that if you were ever backed into a corner, kind of a dark alley, someone were to kind of threaten you with your life, you know, and they were to say, what do you hold to be absolute truth? I would, hold that you would, I would hope that you would think of what's in your hand as the word of God, that you would never let it go. The word of God is what tells you everything you need to know about Jesus, everything you know about uh, what it means to be saved, how to follow him, his Holy Spirit's all revealed to you in his word. You're holding tightly the truth of God as you read the rest of this book. But you're also holding tightly in the other hand, I'm going to call it your imagination. And by imagination, I don't mean like, you know, when you were six years old and you had an imaginary friend and you went to an imaginary land. Like, not that kind of imagination. I want you to hold in this hand sort of the ability to have wonder. Maybe it's the word creativity. Like, you, you will hold on to that. And as you read through God's truth, that you will hold that wonder and not discount what you're about to read just because you don't understand it. You have truth and you have imagination, wonder. Now you're ready to read this glimpse into heaven and this view of the future. Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is John. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now we're going to spend most of our time this morning looking at the throne and the one seated on the throne. But before we do, I just want to acknowledge, isn't this amazing? I mean, isn't this just crazy? This is knocking on heaven's door. And this door opens up, and John sees something that, frankly, is un undescribable with words. And there's a few things that kind of get said here that I want to just kind of be clear about. Um, one of these uh, things that gets said here is he says he's in the Spirit. At once, I was in the Spirit. Kind of that phrase, in the Spirit, I want to talk about for a second, because depending on your, your background and maybe the type of church you grew up in, you could hear those words, in the Spirit, and you could think one thing. Um, and you could grow up in another type of church and think something entirely different. Kind of this idea of in the spirit is where a large part of the, the book of Revelation starts to become debatable for people. Because if you read the first few chapters of the book, John also said that when he saw this vision of Jesus, he was in the spirit. So the inquisitive mind could ask, well, wait, John, were you in the spirit once and then you were out of the spirit and now you're back in the spirit again? And if you're maybe from more of a conservative upbringing, you could tend to think that in the spirit is sort of like a once in a great while sort of thing. And I say that, and then some of you could come from more of a charismatic, more of a Pentecostal view. And you could see in the spirit, and you could think, well, maybe everything is in the spirit. Could maybe even at times tend to overemphasize in the spirit. Like, you know, I was making my toast the other day, and I was spreading my jam, and I was just in the spirit. I think it means something very different from either of those sort of backgrounds. I think actually in the spirit is kind of like 
language that John is using to tell us as if you were watching a great movie that the scene has just changed, right? Like you're watching a movie and you get kind of one scene and then the scene changes. That's what I think happens to John. He's had this scene where he's sitting in his prison cell and Jesus appears to him and it's unlike any other scene he's, he's ever seen. And now he gets kind of caught up in this next scene. And this is where we know things are really different. In the Spirit is really, for me, in this book, all throughout it, it's, it's trueness of being in the presence of God. God is going to work through him, and he's going to lead him, and he's going to guide him, and he's going to show him what this future is going to look like. And we know that it's different. The scene is very different because the next thing it says is he heard this voice that sounded like a trumpet. I don't even know how, I don't know how you make your voice sound like a trumpet. Like that just doesn't seem like voice capabilities. But that tells us how different this scene is. Let me show you something else about this scene. There's a couple references to time. Um, It says, after this, I looked. That's the vision. And then it says again, the words of Jesus come up. I'll show you what will take place after this. Kind of two references to time. And then right after that, it says, at once, I was in the spirit. Kind of the at once would again be another reference to time. I'm going to tell you this morning that if you want any hope of understanding this view of the future, you got to begin to get your head around time because there's these references to time. And I just want to say that time in heaven is not like time here on earth. Now, this shouldn't surprise you. This shouldn't be the jaw-dropping point of the message because you already know this, right? Like, have you ever tried to get God to do something on your timetable? How's that going for you? How well is that working, right? Like you've been praying, you've been wanting God to answer, and it just seems like God's like, hey, come on, you out there? You hearing me? And yet God is never late. He does things in his sovereignty, which is in his view of time. We're going to read about the future. And I said, this is where things get very debatable. And part of that has to do with what John sees. He looks into the future. And he's seen these things, these events that are going to take place someday, but they're happening right before his eyes. And it gets even more confusing than that because some of the things that he sees are in the future, and then some of the things that he sees have already taken place. And so you've kind of got, as the reader, this whiplash. What time-space continuum am I in right now? The future? the present, or things that happened in the past. And this is where you have to, again, keep the imagination in front of you. A lot of the debate in the book of Revelation is going to come uh, with kind of the ideas of the rapture and the tribulation. I'll explain more of this in a message coming up in a few weeks. The rapture is the the point in time when the church, the true believers, uh, are taken up to heaven. And the tribulation are the events that take place, the devastation, the plagues, kind of the tearing apart the the fabric of creation and evil. And a lot of the debate around time is some pastors will try to convince you that everything in Revelation kind of happens sequentially, that you could kind of set a clock to. And others, like myself, would kind of say to you, you can't do that. It's, It's not that linear in the way in which John is seeing things. And so you could have views around this rapture. Does the rapture happen and then all the devastation takes place? We would call that a pre-tribulation view. The church 
uh, leaves and the tribulation occurs. You could have a period of time where the church is left to endure some of the tribulation and plagues, and then it's raptured. We call that a mid-tribulation view. Or you could have this view where the church has to endure all of the tribulation before it's taken up to heaven. We would call that a post-tribulation view. I said, I'll share more on my views. I'm kind of nerding out at the point here. But what I wanted to demonstrate with this is I want you to see that, honestly, no one knows. No pastor really knows how this is all going to unfold in the future. Instead, what I think is more important than trying to timestamp the events of the end times is actually to do what John does, to actually look at what's happening. What does John see in the throne room of God? He goes through a lot more detail on that than explaining kind of this time issue. So let's read about the throne room, picking back up in verse 3. This is John again, and he says, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning the seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. I'll say it again, this is stunning. This is almost indescribable. In fact, I think John is sort of kind of caught up in his own words at this point. Even he's having a hard time using words to describe what he sees. Do you notice how many times he says the word like? You know, he said it's like the face of a lion. It's like an emerald. It's like a sea of glass. Words cannot explain what he's witnessing. And there is kind of, in this story, one central fixture of which everything in heaven is revolving around. If there were a prop in heaven, it would be that piece of furniture that keeps getting referenced, the throne. And scripture has been leading you to this point from the very beginning. In fact, there's some 169 references to the throne uh, in the Bible. 43 of those are found right here in this book. John is going into great detail to tell you that heaven has at the center of it this throne and the one seated on it. In fact, he goes into great detail to tell you who's on the throne, what's happening around the throne, and what's coming from the throne. Kind of um, interesting, I was talking to my wife this morning because it's so odd to me, and she mentioned it as well, that, that there's very few words. In fact, John uses the fewest words to describe who's seated on the throne. And it's none other than God. In fact, his lack of a description tells us that it can be none other than God. In fact, there's all these references throughout the scripture, like 1 John 4, 12, that says no one has ever seen God. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, isn't John in heaven? Well, yeah, but John hasn't died yet. And the end times haven't occurred yet, so he's getting a vision to heaven. He wouldn't see God either. There's scripture where God says, like Exodus 33, where he says, you cannot see my face 
and live. See, Revelation is incredibly consistent with everything the Bible tells us about God. So John kind of has to describe it with just the little bit he can. And he sees the one seated on the throne and he says, it's like jasper and carnelian. Uh, those are actually jewels. They would be entirely translucent. They would refract light in a pure way, in kind of a prism of all colors. Can you imagine that? He sees God, and he sees him in this brilliance of color. Color is beautiful. In fact, uh, you know this, and you can kind of do a little check on yourself right now. How many of you, you know, you, you go home, and you look at the walls on your house, and you love the colors of your walls? And then there's other walls, you look at them, and you're like, oh, that's so drab. We need a, a fresh coat of paint on that, right? Like, we, we repaint that wall. Or maybe you look at your house, and, and you're like, yeah, we couldn't decide on that wall, and we couldn't decide on that wall, and we couldn't decide, so they're all agreeable gray, right? Like, you just can't argue with it. But we know that color is beautiful, and color is this attribute. Beauty is this attribute of God, and so he sees God in all this color. Can you imagine the, the feelings that John has in this moment? I mean, he's seeing this yellow, and we're told that when you see yellow, you're, you're happy. And when you see red, you fall in love. And when you see blue, you're, you're calmed. And he's seeing all of these colors. And then he begins to tell us what's happening around the throne. He says there's something unique about these 24 thrones and 24 elders. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. We just had an annual meeting uh, just before this service, and we had our elders up on stage. We don't even give them thrones. They've got to stand the whole annual meeting, and uh, there's not even 24 of them. But we see having this, this perfect vision of what the church and what leadership is to look like. 24 elders. 24 is actually a biblical number if you could take it as two sets of 12. And that's what I think is happening here in this text. That he's describing 24 elders and 12 of the elders would represent the Old Testament and the 12 tribes of Israel. And the other 12 elders would represent the 12 disciples, the original followers of Jesus. And that would represent the New Testament. There's this perfection. And i got to tell you, this blows me away because John is seeing this vision. He's one of the original 12. So he must be seeing some future version of himself. I mean, just blows my mind to think what he gets to see in this vision. But they all have their thrones, and these thrones are not described in detail. They're lesser versions. They're still clearly a position of power, but they're lesser in all ways. And I think this is important for us because... I don't know what you think of when you hear this word, but we, we all have kind of positions of power. We all have a place where we're seated. We all have a throne, so to speak. In fact, I was thinking this week about my, my grandfather. He died when I was quite young, and yet I remember that he had a throne. He had his seat. Call it a lazy boy, right? And it sat in the living room right in front of the TV. And all of us grandkids, I was one of the younger ones, we all knew not to mess with grandpa's throne, right? Like that's his seat reserved for him. And he would come in the room and, and everyone would just kind of back away from his throne. And then from that place, he would rule. He would tell us to go and get him a lemonade. Or this is before we had remote controls for our TV. He would tell one of a, the subjects, his grandchildren, to you know, change the t channel on the TV. We all have thrones. And whether it's your boss or whether it's a person in power over you. I was thinking this week, we got, a lot of, we got a lot of that, right? We have government thrones, don't we? Um, and some of those thrones are, are stunning, right? Like, have you ever 
taken a tour of the White House. It's, it's pretty amazing. I've gotten to do that. Um, I've never been to the Kremlin, but I've seen pictures. It's just incredible, the opulence of that place. And maybe you could think of other things that hold these areas of power over our lives. Maybe for us today, it's the influence of big tech companies, or maybe it's media news outlets. They certainly have control in the way in which we hear what we hear. But I want to tell you this morning with great hope that none of these earthly thrones are nearly as stunning or as magnificent as this throne. I mean, did you catch what was happening from this throne? There were these these rumblings and flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. That doesn't happen in any of our earthly places, right? I mean, that's truly unique. In fact, it reminds us, it's it's a wink and a nod back to the Old Testament when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and received... Uh, the Ten Commandments. This is God ruling, giving all power, and also saying that this is the place of judgment. We don't like thinking about God's judgment. We like last week's message. We like thinking about the grace of God. But grace isn't grace if there isn't also judgment, and this is a place where that occurs. Finally, we see kind of this, this crazy image. Let's try to make sense out of these freaky creatures that are flying all around this throne. It says, and around the throne, and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living, like an ox. The third living creature, like the the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. Kind of these four creatures. Uh, Four is also a biblical number. In fact, four, whenever it's used in Scripture, kind of uh, points to creation. Kind of points to the created order. In fact, read a little further, Revelation 5 and then Revelation 6, you see that these angels are holding back kind of the four corners of God's creation, north, south, east, and west. Again, kind of points to this creation motif, that there is a created order. Uh, A lot of really smart scholars have kind of done the work, and they say that actually these four creatures represent the four dominions of rulership, and they're all submitting to God. There's the lion, which would represent the wild kingdom. There's the ox or the cow, which would represent all of the domesticated animals. There's the eagle, which would represent the greatest bird, representing uh, all of the flying creatures. And then the face of a man, representing all of humanity, all of, all of, created, all of God's creation, uh, races and colors and tribes and people groups. And they're all submitting. They're all worshiping. You might find them weird to try to get your head around, but it's very clear what they're doing. They're singing. They're worshiping to God. Reminds me of Psalm 19, verse 1, where it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. We see all of this going on, all of this glory being declared over God. And this is important for us because we're here now, and I think sometimes the word worship will get misused. We'll think of worship, and I know I do this sometimes too, we'll think of worship as well, It's that 9 o'clock service at Bridgeway. Or I'm going to go, like you guys, to the 1045 worship service today. And I'll tell you, it's really kind of missing the mark. It's kind of showing our low view of what's happening, not for a moment, not for an hour on Sunday, but what's happening at all times in heaven is this worship. I love what C.S. Lewis has to say about worship. He says, we must suppose ourselves to be in perfect love with God drunk with, drowned in, dissolved by the delight that flows from us. When you think of this worship, when you think of your worship, are you drunk with, drowned in, dissolved by 
this worship of this God, this throne, this view and vision of heaven. See, God created us for worship, and we can't help but give our time and our energy, our passions, our zeal to something or someone. But this vision of heaven reminds us that only God alone is worthy. John is showing you that he is worthy of your worship. That little word worship in the old English language means worthship. And only God is worthy. I want to give you just one way to think about this entire story, this entire vision. And my hope for you this morning and encouragement would be to begin with the throne. No matter where you're at in your faith journey, maybe you're here this morning, you're just exploring faith, I would tell you to start here. Begin with the throne. Maybe you've been a follower of God all your life and and you've never taken seriously what this vision, what this book is about. And I would, again, call you to pay attention and to begin with the throne. You know, a lot of weeks uh, when I'm preaching, I work really hard to come up with kind of a way in which you can apply this word. You know, apply it tomorrow and apply it on a Tuesday. And I, I just, all this week, I just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't kind of simplify this story down to three cute little cliches. It's just one thing because this view of heaven is far too magnificent. Just begin with the throne. I mean, what would it look like tomorrow if, if you got up and the first thing you thought about was this throne? And you started kind of asking yourself, not just at the first hours of the day, but all throughout the day, hey, just kind of a little level check. You know, am I, am I drunk with, drowned in, dissolved by this worship, this opportunity to love God? I want to invite you to do that. I want to invite you, as John was invited, to begin with the throne. All your questions, all the things that are unanswered, things about the end times, things about what are going to happen by the end of this week, to just begin to humbly come before the throne, holding that truth and that imagination before you. I want to pray with you now, so if you would bow your heads, if you would pray with me, please. God, it's, it's incredible to think that you created us For this moment, you created us to hold this truth and this imagination and to bring it before you. Not so that we could just make sense of it, but so that we could have our hearts changed by an opportunity to worship and to lift up your name. I want you to imagine that as you're here this morning and as you have heard these words, as you're seated here, just imagine if you were John, if you were standing in the throne room of God, what would you say? How would you feel? Would you worship? I want to tell you this morning that we serve an amazing, an indescribable God. And he invites us in. He knows the future and he has a perfect plan for it. And so let's sing to him now. We love you and we praise you and we thank you. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide.